Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. A listener production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to share their wisdom, discuss the content in this episode and give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To join, search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg. We have some very exciting announcements and giveaways. Plus, we also post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. To join my community, search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Tony Martin is one of the most popular and respected comedians of his generation, entertaining audiences across the globe with his provocative, wacky and thought-provoking comedy. He has graced Australian TV and radio as an integral part of some of the funniest comedy shows in history, from The Late Show to Get This and Martin Malloy. Tony reminds us to bear witness to the complexity of the human experience and through humour to look and listen closer so that we might uncover the small truths and surprises in life. This conversation with Tony traverses many realms, the intricate art of his craft, navigating loss and finding the funny in the seemingly mundane. Nowadays in my stand-up, I turn everything into comedy. It's a good way of getting it out of your system. I was once in a car accident on the way to the radio station to record an episode of Get This and in the middle of the accident, while it was happening, I remember my brain going... I'll get two segments out of this. <laughs> this is great material. As the comes <gasps> being sheared in half. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Tony Martin has his own podcast, Sizzletown, and is the author of many books, including Lolly Scramble and A Nest of Occasionals. In a nutshell, this conversation is about how to put faith into action and how a childhood dream can become a reality. I have been a big fan of Tony's work since I was a young girl and talking to him was an absolute pleasure. My hope is that this exchange encourages you to transcend any barriers that may be holding you back and encourages you to forge your own unique path. Tony Martin, you are one of Australia. I will claim you as our own, even though I know you are from New Zealand. Yes. Adored comedians. Well... (laughs) Not in my own family, but certainly with a with a certain class of glasses wearing person, possibly. Uh, take us back to the younger years of Tony Martin. How how did it all begin? Your love for comedy and you as a as a young fella. Well, I had a, an interesting uh, self revelation recently, which is that I'm now doing exactly what I was doing when I was ten years old. Yes, because I think the first comedy I ever did was. Uh, when I was 10 in what would be called, uh, oh, it's New Zealand, so it's a different school system, called Standard 4. Uh, they had a tape recorder in the class and we had to record our own plays. For We had to write a play and then record it and do the voices. And I fired everyone else in the, in the cast and took the tape recorder home and did all the voices myself, one at a time. And... I realise that's exactly what I'm doing now in my spare room of my house with Sizzletown, the podcast I currently do. Yes. Just with much fancier equipment. (laughs) So it's been like a a 47-year round trip to get back to to literally the first thing I did in comedy, which was talking into a tape recorder. Well, it's funny because when... When people always ask, how do I find my passion or how do I find my purpose in life? 
the number one key thing I say, and I've heard from all the thought leaders, is go back to when you were young. What did you do when you were young that you loved? And if money was not a big deal in your life, then what would you do? And it's like you've absolutely encapsulated everything that you wanted to do when you were 10. It is uh, it is very much like that because I was a huge fan of radio comedy Yes, uh, in New Zealand. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine what New Zealand was like in the 60s and 70s. There was one television channel. Um, it was usually playing rugby or ballroom dancing. There wasn't a huge amount of comedy. I think we got... Are You Being Served? That was on, certainly. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, most of the comedy I enjoyed was on the radio and there was a guy called Kenny Everett who um, was a a British comedian who had a serial called Captain Kremen that was full of crazy sound effects and which moved at 100 miles an hour. It was like the person doing it must be on drugs. (laughs) And they would play that in the breakfast show on Merv Smith's Breakfast uh, corner with, uh, you know, it was like a normal breakfast show. And then for three minutes, there was this insane comedy serial from England. And then they had shows like The Goon Show and, and other very elaborate sound effects oriented comedy programs on the radio. And I just went, how can I do that for a job? But I don't know that I would have said it like that. Yeah. I just would have thought maybe there's some way you could do that for a job. And there wasn't any way of doing it in New Zealand because there wasn't even live comedy. Um, And I got into it via firstly making recordings in my own bedroom, then amateur theatre, and then eventually radio ads because radio ads were somewhere where you could do silly voices and, you know, be on the radio. Admittedly, you know, promoting muffler madness all through May. But hopefully, you know, at some point they would let me do comedy, which is eventually what happened. And you spent a lot of time on your dad's boat where you would listen to radio. Yeah, well, that was all we could yeah. get. My, my step, one of my many dads, uh, had a... <laughs> <laughs> it's a very complicated family tree. But he had a, a marlin fishing uh, boat and he was determined to catch uh, an enormous swordfish Never did, but we uh, we spent months at a time at sea. Yes. So all you could do was listen to the radio. So you're getting this elaborate comedy coming in, mostly from England, mostly from the, like, this is the 70s, but the shows were all from the 50s and 60s. And, you know, it's what they call theatre of the mind. So, you know, it's it's how radio works. Yeah. You're, you're hearing it, but you're picturing something insanely elaborate. So the goon show would have... You know, they would the one. The example I always mention is: uh, I remember in one episode, it took someone ninety seconds to fall down a flight of stairs. <laughs> and that was the, we were rolling about laughing at that on a boat on the high seas, and, and and I'm just going, how can I do this for a job? Like that looks like or sounds like a, a fun thing to do for a living. And did anyone ever say, like, you won't make money in comedy or did your parents ever poo-poo the idea of you doing something like, that's not a serious job? There was there was a lot. To this day, I mean, I'm in my 50s and relatives will still ask me, well, what have you got to fall back on? <laughs> you know, when are you going to get a proper job is a phrase that's often used. But I do remember my mum was not encouraging but not discouraging. I yes. think that was the key to it. She yes. never was like cheering me on, but she also never said, this is an insane idea, which it was because there was there was just no... I mean, New Zealand, I, I, people in Australia see Flight of the Concords and Cal Wilson and uh, Melanie Bracewell and they assume that there has long been this amazing comedy scene in New Zealand, but it really only emerged... <laughs> About a year after I left the country, it was like they were waiting for me to go and then it's like, okay, he's gone, let's have some comedy. But up until then, you, if you wanted to do comedy, yeah, that literally all you could do was uh, uh, do voices in ads or, uh, you know, amateur theatre where you would inevitably be appearing in a British farce with a name like Run For Your Wife. And what made you want to move from New Zealand to Australia? It was just this crazy opportunity that that happened. I was working at this FM radio station in Hamilton uh, in the middle of the North Island and we were the sister station of FM 104 in Brisbane, which is now Triple M in Brisbane, and the manager of the Brisbane station was visiting our station for one week and... During the week he was visiting, his copywriter quit and he just panicked and went, who have you got here that we can move over? 
I got shifted over from, from New Zealand to Brisbane. And then obviously the move was good. Yeah, it was great because, you know, the you, well, firstly you had comedy on television. There was yes. like a lot of exciting shows on. I mean, maybe people wouldn't remember a show called Australia, You're Standing In It, which was a big show in the 80s. We, uh, you had Norman Gunston, who yes, we were yeah. huge fans of in New Zealand. And it was just, even though Brisbane didn't have much live comedy either, it just felt so much more sophisticated than the agricultural town that I was from. Who did you look up to when you were young from a comedy perspective and really go, that work is brilliant? Well, the people I mentioned who did The Goon Show was a guy called Spike Milligan and there was Peter Sellers, was a, a yes. people would probably know yeah. more for his movies. And there was a lot of British comedy, people like Morecambe and Wise and The Goodies, uh, Monty Python. I was too young. I wasn't allowed to watch Monty Python because that was considered too offensive at our house. But I, I snuck into Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the movie. And then American comedians like Steve Martin mm. and uh, Richard Pryor. I remember seeing Richard Pryor's concert movie. That was a big one. But it was all, and the only local comedian who I really liked, <laughs> because there was only about three of them, was John Clark, who was uh, who sadly died uh, quite recently, but was huge in New Zealand. He was, if you, I always say to people, if you can imagine Paul Hogan in Australia, but four times more popular, that's how big John Clark was as his character Fred Dagg in New Zealand, and he was the first comedian who spoke with a New Zealand accent, Who, because most people on New Zealand television spoke like this. Good evening, <laughs> and this is the Network News on the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation. Why and, did they talk like that? No, they often wore a tuxedo <laughs> and had a vase full of flowers next to them as they threw to, you know, Zed Carl, <laughs> some British, you know, cop show. But suddenly we had Fred Dagg who spoke like this and had a New Zealand accent. Get in behind. And it was quite startling to hear someone speaking like that. And, and of course, I hear this, the same thing when I moved here. People would say the same thing about Barry Humphreys and Paul Hogan. They were the, they used actual, the voices you would hear in the street were suddenly the currency of comedy on radio and television. When was the point where you thought to yourself, and I mean, you could have been a young kid, God, like, I'm funny, I'm making people laugh. Well, I was terribly unfunny and, and people in my family would say little has changed, but I was very unfunny at school. I was My sense of humour was like puns and, and sort of wordplay and I was well-intentioned, but it took years. It's really a live audience that makes you funny because when yes. you have to, you know, when, you, when people have to laugh, suddenly you can't get away with not being funny. It has to either be funny or not. So I think... Um, Certainly when I started performing live was when I, I got a bit funnier. Um, I had a huge breakthrough on New Zealand radio. I found a room at the radio station that was full of records that were not records of music. They were interview records that they would send out in the old days uh, to radio stations to make it sound like David Bowie has had visited, um, you know, Tika Witty yeah, in yeah. New Zealand. And it was just the answers, the the bands would record the answers and then they would leave a gap for the question and then wow. they would send a script out with the questions and then the local DJ would go, G'day, you're listening to 898 in Tamaranui and, oh, look, David Bowie's just walked in and then he would <laughs> press the next track on the record and David Bowie would go, it's great to be here. And, and they would make it sound like, you know, and that was a standard thing. They, we, they had this room with hundreds of these interview records with every recording artist of the day. Yes. And I had this idea, what if we change the questions? So I started doing these uh, comedy segments on radio where, um, yeah, I would just ask ridiculous, I would re-edit the answers and change the questions and make these people sound insane. I would, you know, ask David Bowie <laughs> if it's true that he recorded his last album up Brian Eno's ass, and he would say, yes, the acoustics are very good up there. <laughs> you know, it would sound... And people in the mid-'80s had no idea how this was being achieved. Yes. Now it's quite a common comic sort of uh, technique, but people would call up the station and go, "What? why would he say that? And so that was, a, that was my first breakthrough uh, outside of my own bedroom. That was my first, you know, public yes. success. And, and that was... 
it it was funny, but it was what was also good was no one else had thought to do that. Yes, before, so it was new. So that was the secret. When you were doing stand up, do you remember your first stand up act? Oh, it was it was um, quite poor, if I remember. <laughs> But I didn't do stand. I did everything backwards. Like normally, people go stand up, radio, television. Yeah. I actually, when I came to Australia, uh, the first real comedy I did. I did some comedy on radio in Brisbane. But then I became a writer for the D Generation. So, and then I was allowed to be in sketches. Yes. So I was on TV, and then we went to radio and did a radio show, and then I did stand up. So. It was tricky because I was slightly, not famous, but I was slightly well-known and that's always really hard yeah. because it, most people when they're starting out doing stand-up, yeah. no one knows who they are. If you make a dick of yourself, who, no, who cares? <laughs> but then when I started, it was like, oh, there's the guy off the radio. Let's see if he's any good. And so it was doubly embarrassing when I went poorly, which everyone does when they start out. But. And what makes you then want to go back up and do it again? Like a lot of people, the first few shows I did went really well because there was a there was a thing that happened at the Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda called um, what was it called the Delivery Room, where you had to do new material. They had a filthy rope. It was called Rope Night. They had a rope hanging from the ceiling of the venue. And if you got up and did a joke you'd done before and the audience had heard it before, they would go, rope, and you had to go and hold this rope. And oh, my gosh. And it was gosh. incredibly humiliating. And so <laughs> I realised that on these nights, all the famous comedians were reduced to the level of amateurs because they were all having to do new material. Ah. So a lot of really well-known people were dying in the ass, and I went, now's my chance to get in, yes. in that crew. And... So I don't know where the standards were a bit lower or people were a bit kinder towards new material, but I actually went really well for my first three shows in that room. And then I did my first show outside of that room. It was a New Year's Eve show in um, in St Kilda at a place they're called Stitches, which doesn't exist anymore, and not a single laugh. I remember doing – I had an 18-minute routine, which I did in 11 minutes to complete <laughs> silence. And it was like, oh, okay, I need better jokes. So I'm what gonna... goes through your brain? Like, I mean, it was do really, you die on was, stage? It was horrible. And I remember Trev Marmalade was one of the other um, <laughs> acts on and he just looked at me like, oh, you poor bastard. And I remember get, getting home and I was there was no one else home and it was two in the morning and I was standing in the kitchen going, <laughs> I need some good material. I need some material that can make a general audience laugh, not the audience who are there to see new material night yeah. at SB. And what I always, this sounds like a scene from a movie, but this really happened. There was hundreds of ants in my kitchen going along the bench. And I came up with this idea. I went, if I had a megaphone, I could pretend to be a cop addressing these ants through the megaphone, going, drop that sugar. And, <laughs> and I just had this mad idea. And then I remember the a few days later, I went and spent $200 on a megaphone <laughs> and wrote this whole bit where I'm a guy addressing ants through a megaphone, and it killed. And that became my closing bit for the next two years. Wow. <laughs> it was that one bit that saved me. I remember it's like, it was just, it was such a bad night that I went, I have to get something that genuinely works, <laughs> or I'm going to have to find a new job. How do you come up with this? hysterical humour that is every day. How does it even come to your head to think about getting a megaphone and talking to ants through it? <laughs> well, that's just, I mean, that's just how my brain works and that's how most comedians work. Yeah. You, you just look at things and you try and go, what have people not thought of about that thing? And the example I always use, maybe the most popular stand-up comedian in the world is Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. And I remember when he did that bit about why why is the chemist a foot and a half above everybody else? <laughs> yeah. Not the chemist. Yeah, 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 the pharmacist. And I remember... It's so it, true, though. I actually so like... <laughs> and you, as a comedian, you go, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> yeah. Why Why have I not noticed that the chemist is higher <laughs> up than everyone? And it makes you angry. You go, I should have thought of that. I'm not doing my job properly that I haven't thought of that. Yeah. And and so that's how your brain works. You've just got to keep looking at things from different angles. And then you inject the personal into it, yes. of course. You inject something from your own life and your own attitude into it. And Do you put a lot of your personal life into your comedy? I do now. I didn't when I started. It was very generic. And I remember 
the biggest lesson I had when I started doing because I was always I was all, and I still to this day as a stand up am very I call myself a C list stand up who can be a B list stand up on a good night. And I think the reason I've never made the leap up to A list is I've never gone completely confessional. Like I've yes, never yes. I've never t- like someone like Judith Lucy, who's a great comedian, literally all of her life is out on the yeah. table. Um I'm slightly reluctant to do that because I I do have a lot of great material in my family, but my my parents are still alive. Yeah, I have. It's a very complicated family <laughs> situation, and I just wouldn't feel comfortable airing it all out in public. And it's frustrating because I go, oh, there's so much gold there. But when I started, I I made this mistake of 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 mixing things that were true with things that clearly weren't true. Mm. And what I realised is the audience were laughing, but they didn't trust me. Because I would do stuff that genuinely was from my own life. Yes. Business about my mum and her obsession with the good scissors and things like that. But then I I would tell this story about how my uh, uncle was in hospital for... (laughs) Hospital, what am I saying? In uh, prison. (laughs) What's happening there? Um, uh, He was in prison for, for... for something he didn't do. He didn't pay his taxes for seven years, which wasn't, that was just a joke I said. He was never in prison. But I had this long story about how he escaped from prison by weaving a rope from all those tiny bits of red cotton that used to be in the Band-Aid. And that people loved that bit, but I could see they were going, oh, that clearly didn't happen. And so that then made them go, oh, does that mean the other thing about his mum is also lies? Yes. And I think I've learned my lesson now. I, I think of... I try and have everything be true in my stand-up. Or if it's not, I clearly let the audience know that this is a a moment of surrealism. That makes a lot of sense. I remember when I interviewed Kate Langbrook, she said that the reason people had loved her and Husey over the years is because they would always speak their truth. Right. It was always they weren't making stuff up. And so I think that is like I'd never kind of thought about it before, like why... As a comedian, would you make stuff up? You know, because well, usually it is those yeah. stories of your everyday life. But it it's interesting to see that you thought that some things probably fell a little flatter when they weren't 100% honest. Yeah. I think when you're starting out, you just desperately cling to anything that's yes. making you laugh. And yes. now I know, well, I know that bit works, but I'm not going to do that routine because it doesn't fit in this routine. But also on radio, when like what Kate's talking about is um, we had a very strange trajectory on radio because when we started, we were sketch comedians on yeah. radio. And our breakfast show that was on Triple M for five years was a very odd show. We were all playing characters. I was playing this character called the Fat Man, who was a sort of <laughs> embittered voiceover man. And I would occasionally talk about real things from my life, but they were all filtered through this character of the Fat Man. And... Then when we did Martin Malloy a few years later, I, my voice was still the voice. Like, if you hear tapes of me on Martin Malloy, it's like a slightly different voice. <laughs> more, It's got a more Aussie kind of twang to it, and it's because I was still slightly the fat man. Yes. And then when we did Get This, I was more myself. And then ironically, the thing I'm doing at the moment, Sizzletown, which is the most bizarre show I've ever done because I'm, I've got all these fictional characters calling him, but the version of me that's hosting the show is the closest to the real me yes. that I've done. So it's, it's yeah, it, people do, if you're doing a show every day, people want to hear the real you. Absolutely. I, I do a show with Chrissy Sam yeah. Brownie in Melbourne and, you know, they are, I think, the best I, I know of on radio for just turning everything that happens to them into material. So yes. when I go on that show... Everything I say is genuinely something that's yes. to me, usually something appallingly misjudged and embarrassing. Um, but so I'm not going to be telling stories about, you know, my uncle weaving a rope out of band aid thread uh, on that show. What do you think about there's comedians that make a lot of fun of themselves, which I mean, most do when it's hysterical, but then ones that might kind of go over the line and they're saying stuff that you think. I don't know, say they're making fun of their weight or, you know. It's interesting because that's been a a, a very big topic uh, with Nanette. Yeah, Uh, it makes me sad. Like I saw someone do it and I just, I felt my soul was sad for them that they were making a fool out of themselves. Yeah. But everyone was laughing, but I thought, 
how could they go home at night and feel good about themselves? Well, it depends what aspect of your own personality you're choosing to reveal. Yes. Anna Gadsby was very, uh, I think, was fed up with, she felt she was being forced, that self, being self-deprecating was actually emotionally yes. injurious to herself. Yeah. She was, she was being, in order to appeal to a general audience, she was being forced to uh, kind of talk down about herself. And she was obviously just fed up with doing that. And so that's one aspect of self-deprecation. On the other hand, I do an 11-minute routine about um, going in for a colonoscopy at the hospital and the embarrassment of, of what happened when, when, that, when I went through that procedure. Now, that's not, I'm not um, having to suppress or, or I'm not having to, uh, you know, it's not like I'm a fat person. Yes. I'm having to pre- make jokes about being yeah. a fat person in order to uh, ingratiate myself to yeah. an audience. Or, or in Hannah's case, obviously, it's a sexuality matter. Yes. It's like, okay, I've got to, I've got to, She's sick of playing the comedy lesbian in order to not uh, alienate the audience. I'm, I've probably worded that wrongly. But just talking about going in for a colonoscopy and 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 just saying what an idiot you made of yourself during every part of that procedure, which is what happened, um, I think everyone can identify with that. And I don't feel like I'm no. cutting into yes. my own psyche by revealing all that stuff. I think people love it because they go... Oh, it actually makes people feel good about their own yes. colonoscopy. What do you think, though, of the other side that when they are kind of doing, like in the case of the person that I was seeing, mm. talking down about themselves and... You don't need to do... I mean, if it's really funny, maybe that could work, but it sounds like that person was... <laughs> Sort of almost debasing themselves yes. in order to yes. get an audience on side, and I mean, I, I don't. I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I nowadays in my stand up, I turn everything into comedy, and it's thera- It's it's good. It's a good way of getting it out of your system. I mean, I often mention this is a very extreme example, but I was once in a uh, a car accident on the way to the radio station to record. Uh, an episode of Get This, and in the middle of the accident, while it was happening, I remember my brain going, I'll get two segments out of this. <laughs> this is great. Like, my brain was actually thinking this is great material as the car was being sheared in half. And, I mean, that's that's sadly how the anyone who, like Kate Langbrook, anyone who works on radio yes. will be listening to this going, yep, I know that <laughs> feeling because you turn everything into material. And to stand up, certainly in stand up you do that, but at least in stand up you're not having to fill three hours a day. Yes. And so, yeah, you, you, yeah, I mean, I guess what you're saying is how, how what price your own personal dignity yeah. is what you're saying really. And I guess that's up to everyone. How far do you want to push it? I mean, it's like, I guess let's just talk about large people, for example. I remember John Candy was a large yes. comedian who was hilarious. Yeah, he was hilarious. And yet he hardly ever did material about being, quote, yeah. a fat guy. Uh, if you watch um, Second City Television, which is an absolutely brilliant show that he was on, he would often play Orson Welles or, or, or um, Divine. He would play a larger person because he could look like that person. Yes. But the jokes were never, oh, Orson Welles is eating a load of sandwiches. <laughs> no, no. It's Orson yeah, Welles, yeah. the megalomaniac yeah. film director. Um, and I always found it very uncomfortable when occasionally in a film that he wasn't involved in the writing of, they would do a fat joke about John Candy. I would go, oh, no, don't, no. John Candy's too nice. Don't make him be the comedy fat guy. Uh, whereas someone like Chris Farley, for example, another large yes. funny guy, was quite happy to do as many, you know, sketches where he's a wrecking ball as he, and he was clearly uh, much more comfortable doing that. And it's largely down to their personality. Mm. John Candy was a much more vulnerable person. Uh, John, uh, you know, Chris Farley was like a bulldozer. He, he he would do anything for a laugh. So it gets down to the individual yes. comedian and what they're. Ha- it's all about. Uh, Matching up to the persona. Mm. Is there ever a point where you've said some material either on radio or I suppose in a show it's obviously prepped more, 
where you have regretted it? Oh, it, almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> everything I do, because you're constantly making value. You're 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 judging it as you're doing it. Like you're constantly saying things, and obviously, the more you do it, the better you are at judging how it's going to come across. Yes. And you know, you'll say something that's funny in your delivery, and then you'll see a transcript of it. And you go, "Oh, that reads terribly," because they're not getting the nuance of yeah. the delivery, the level of irony that you're pitching it at. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're constantly misjudging things. And I mean, we do Sizzletown, the show I do now is all of the, it may not sound like it, but it's almost entirely improvised. So yes. I improvise all of these callers and often they have extremely uh, unpleasant views about things because I'm parodying talkback radio. Yes. And I'm constantly emailing Matt Dower who edits it um, and just go, oh, just cut that line. No, lose that bit lose that, no, no, let's not have that. That was funny when I did it, but now I've listened to it for a couple of days. We really need to lose yes. that bit. But, and it, <clears throat> pardon me, it makes me wonder, thank God that show is not live. Yeah. It couldn't be done live yeah. anyway. But I'm going, oh, if it was live, so many. Like, it's so good to be able to have a couple of days to sit on something and decide whether. Absolutely. Whether you should use it. Have you ever gotten in big trouble for anything you've done? Oh, yeah, not as much as you'd think. Um, but, yeah, I remember we were – it's never what you think it's going to be. There used to be a magazine or a news – I guess it was a newspaper called The Truth. And, <laughs> and we did – there was a, a famous celebrity was uh, involved in a shoplifting incident and we did we did some terrible jokes about this person and and the the person's partner – was furious about it and we were, you know, on the front page of the truth as these offensive young people <laughs> making these insensitive jokes. So, yeah, there's, there's – I, I've blotted a lot of them out but there would be dozens, certainly, certainly. And I look at things that I – when I was younger and go, oh, that's really <laughs> misjudged. <laughs> you touched on before that when you came to Australia you started working for the most prolific group, the D-Generation. Yes. How was that? Oh, that was great. Well, it was very early on. They'd only done one TV series and I had this incredible stroke of luck in that Rob Sitch, who yes. was one of the main writers and really the star of the show, went back to medical school for a couple of years and so they needed someone out. He was going to appear in the show but he wasn't going to be able to write for it. So yeah. I was brought in as a junior writer and and they, and they just didn't fire me when he came back, luckily. So I was really lucky to get in there. And, you know, I often wonder what would have happened because Rob, as you may have noticed, is not a doctor. Yes. <laughs> he changed his mind. Um, and, yeah, it was a really um, – Tom Gleisner was the, the – I guess the, it was very – there was no leader of the group, but Tom was kind of the unofficial head writer and he was very much an Obi-Wan yeah. an OB figure for me for about three or four years. And I learned, I always say about 40% of what I know about writing jokes I've got from Tom because Tom has a very, as you would know from just it, watching him on, on Have You Been Paying Attention, he has a very high joke count. It's like he has a meter in his head that there always has to be a joke every seven seconds. And he's in those days he was really big on cracking the whip. He'd go that. you get three more jokes into that sketch. You know? Really? So I'm, I still have his voice in the back of my head with, with everything I do. Like, yeah, get more jokes in. Where I fell absolutely in love with your work was from The Late Show. And I clearly remember, I was thinking about this when I was prepping for this interview. And, you know, I don't have so many memories of my childhood. You block a lot of them out or you just can't, you just can't remember a lot of them. This memory is so vivid because it's such a special memory for me. I remember that it was the first adult show I was oh, allowed right. to watch at night time. Right. And so on a Saturday night when it was on, I remember I was allowed to stay up late and I'd go into my parents, like my parents went in the bed, but then I'd go into mum and dad's bed right. and I'd lie at the end because, you know, the, the TV was that little kind of TV yes, that we all yes. used to have. And it was just me by myself in the bed and I'd, I'd wait. And I think it was like birds of a feather or something was, was on before. People would often uh, record on VHS <laughs> yeah. the show and the number of people who say to me, I've seen the last four <laughs> yes. minutes of every birds yeah. of a feather episode. So <laughs> I remember, this, I think it was English 
Oh, was it an English show? Yeah, 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 yeah. This English show, Birds of a Feather, again, I was probably watching the last four minutes of, of it as well and I would be so excited that The Late Show would come on. I don't even know how I discovered it, but I did. And it brought me so much joy, so much joy to sit there for that hour I think it was on for. Yeah, it was. sometimes it went way over the Oh, did it? It was live to air. It was... Was it live to air? I can't even remember. Sketches, obviously, were recorded like shit scared. But, yeah, the show itself was live to air. And I, to this day, I'm still quite shocked that we did all of that live to air, (laughs) songs and things. It was was the best show, I think. It's, to this day, one of the best shows that was ever created. I mean, there were so many amazing sketches that came out of it. I was watching that uh, that that warehouse sketch, the job warehouse sketch the other day and the street interviews. Can you tell us how much work went into them? Well, there was a lot because um, with those ones, they were filmed by Santo on home video. (laughs) And a lot of the show, like even Shit Scared, was filmed just on a home video camera. Really? Of course, everyone has a phone. In those days, that sort of stuff didn't go to air. And I remember we were, the technical department, the ABC, were constantly telling us, you know, that's not good enough to go to air. But... What it gave you was when you were out filming things with just a little home video camera, yeah. nobody assumed that it was going to be on TV. They just thought we were students making some <laughs> sort of something for RMIT or something. Yeah. So people would be very um, open in those yes. street interviews in a way that they wouldn't now. And in fact, by the end of the series, when we started to get a bit well known, because it was kind of a cult show. For it was absolutely, it was. A year and a half. And by the end of the second year, People, it was just, oh, Mick and Tony, and people are trying to be funny. Yes. And I remember with those street interviews, the the big criticism at the time was, oh, they're only talking to mad people, old people, and foreigners. (laughs) That was the word (laughs) we would often hear. And we would go, well, unfortunately, those are the people who don't know who we are. Because once people knew who we were, they would try and be funny, and then nothing real is happening. So the people who you see being interviewed in those street interviews generally except maybe towards the end, like that Olympics one that's currently on YouTube. But generally they had no idea who they who we were and they never imagined that it was going to go to television. And also I don't think you had to sign. I was going to say, it's like now there's like so many release forms. No, no. Was, we would, I often bump into people and go, I was the person who said. There was one guy I was watching. Was it a guy or a girl? I can't remember. And you kept going into the shop and then you went in like all – Dressed yes. as that's right. Well, that was a that was actually a shop, yeah, job warehouse. Yeah, yeah. It's at the top of Burke Street, and we used to work just down the road. And uh, the the shopkeeper was notoriously, uh, you know, didn't like anyone coming into his yes. shop, even if they were intending to buy something. <laughs> so we just walked past there every day, and we just went, let's just try and go in and see what happens. And I think, yeah, we had a. A, a pantomime horse at one point to try and get in there. Was it just hysterical? I mean, it looks like so much fun. Was it so much fun? It was scary because that show, you know, that was an hour. You had to have an hour a week. We didn't have any other writers except us. Yes. It was just seven of us. There was eight and when Judith joined in the second year. but So we had an hour to fill every week and you would get to Thursday and you'd be looking at the board and it would only be up to like 40 minutes and you'd be going, what? what what is going to be on the rest of the... People often say, was it hard getting things on? I'm going, we, nothing was ever rejected on the late show. If you thought of it, it was on yeah. the show that Saturday. So we would be out filming those street interviews on, a say, a Thursday morning, and you would have to film for about four or five hours to get just a five-minute bit that was funny. Wow. There was so much that wasn't funny. Yeah. It was boring, and there was so much editing, and you'd be editing at two in the morning trying to get it down and going, we're on air, and two days' time. We still haven't rehearsed that big musical number. It was just a panic every... It was a, two years of being in a constant state of panic, that show. So I look back at it now and go, oh, yeah, that was funny, but I don't remember... La- we weren't laughing that much when we were doing it. We were just going, have we got enough? <laughs> have we got enough show? Do you miss it? Uh, I, I don't know whether I would have the guts to do all of that live now, um, but, I mean, I still... You know, I always have something on the boil that... Yeah, where I get to do my stupid voices and my crazy ideas. And as long as I have something to work on, even in the great thing during COVID is because I am the full cast of Sizzletown. Yes. I can just go into the spare room of my house and talk into a tape recorder for a couple of hours and then email it to Matt and 
he edits it and we, we're able to put a whole show together, which for me is as satisfying as an episode yeah. of The Late Show. It's obviously appealing to a much smaller audience, but it's just as satisfying and I'm just... I, every day I think I'm so lucky to have something I can actually do because so many people I know are yes. no work at the moment. Do you miss the team? Like it looked like just the funniest group of people and you look like you just all got along so well. It was a great team. That was really the key to that show is that we really hit the ground running because we had done that show on radio for five years. Yeah. So I always say... The two years of The Late Show were like years six and seven of our radio show. So a lot of the dynamics and the mucking around interplay between everyone was already in place. Yes. Look, most TV shows take a couple of years yeah. to get to that point. Well, we, oh, they we, wouldn't even give them a couple of years no, now. they wouldn't. Well, we exactly. That's so true. There have been a couple of shows since that have tried to do live. Yeah. And I think they there was one Let Loose Live. I think that, <laughs> that lasted two. But, um, yeah, no, it was a great time. I mean, we still do see each other because, you know, have you been paying attention? Oh, yeah, that's, is of course. pretty much everyone. Not everyone. Jason Stevens is, uh, well, I, people often ask, you know, what's Jason doing? I think he's actually the most <laughs> successful one of all. Is he? Yeah, what is he doing? He's a producer. He made the ah. film The King with uh, Stephen Curry as Graham Kennedy and... He's, uh, yeah, every third show on TV has his name in the credits. Everyone that knows you, Tony, talks about how meticulous you are and how you can't find a comedian that is so detailed and is just an, an absolute master at their at their craft. Where do you think that came from? Oh, it's just trying to get things absolutely right. And it's not because I'm incredibly hardworking. I'm actually quite lazy by nature. I would always try and get out of things if I can. But <laughs> I just think, you know, if you're going to do something, you have to do it properly. Because I, I always think if you're doing comedy, you're competing with the best. Everything's on YouTube. What's the point of doing a sketch if you can't at least try and make it as good as what's going yeah. on overseas or... You know, we have obviously Sean McAuliffe is doing world-class work. So, yeah, I just want it to be as good as it can be. And a lot of the funny stuff is in the detail, is in the mm. background sound or the, you know, a costume can be funny, a, a font can be funny. Details are, are funny and details are what makes something particular as opposed to just another generic idea. It's a funny thing because I was just watching uh, this interview with Oprah. I was watching it on YouTube though. And she was talking about how you need to be the best at your craft. Like the best that you can be is how you will succeed. And and kind of to what you've been doing for so long, you try your best every single time. It's not a half-assed job. And I think, no. I think when you love something, I mean, I know with this podcast – I probably give my well, I do produce it myself as well. But my audio producers and the so people look after social media and the mm. team that I have who are brilliant, a lot of grief at times because it needs in my head to be perfect because you hold yeah. a high standard. There's so many podcasts, yeah, and you want yours to to stand out. Yes, and I think you know, for anyone kind of following a passion, I think that also is a really good message that you should try and make it as best that you can and, and yeah. it will help you in the long run. But it's also that thing of, we were talking about this before we went on air, we said, you know, you asked, do I do any editing? And I yes. go, well, I don't physically work Pro Tools because <laughs> I go, I could study it for 10 years and I'd never be as good as him at, at doing that. And you're always trying to do what you do better than anyone else. Yes. Kind of quite obnoxious, really, in some ways. You go, I want to be the best at this. And so I have, for probably the last 20-plus years, I've been obsessed with a particular kind of acting in comedy, naturalism. It's sort of a halfway point between improvisation and scripted comedy. A lot of sitcoms on TV, to me, feel overcooked. It feels like the actors are saying the lines for the 20th time. But then a lot of improvised comedy is very messy and undisciplined. And there's this fantastic halfway point that you can achieve where it's, it's scripted and it's worked out to some extent, 
but there's moments in it that are surprising and accidents have been captured yeah. on film or on tape. And that's the thing that interests mm. me the most at the moment. I've been trying to get it in the things I direct for TV, in a web series I'm making at the moment, in Sizzletown where it's the, the, the calls are all improvised but then they're edited down so that you would think that they'd been scripted. But you hopefully the acting is messy and people use words like like I'm doing now where the words are slightly coming out in the wrong order because that's how you know what I'm saying? It's I, I always think of Chandler in French. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know those witticisms <laughs> just come out perfectly worded. You know, it's funny, but no one speaks like that. And so I'm always trying to get naturalism into the acting of the comedy and and get a slight improvisational edge to it. And in my mind, not no one else is doing that. Now they are. Heaps of people are doing it. But I'm going, I feel like I'm forging my own sort yeah. of path there. I think it also is a is something about just being yourself and not trying to copy someone else. Because yeah. people often go, I could do it as an interviewer and copy Oprah or copy, you know, Andrew Denton or someone like yes. that. But I think to myself, you are you and you've got a style and just go with the flow. And I think that's what you've done so well as as well, Tony. But also it's fl- it's flying hours. It's like only giving a show two episodes. Yes. Almost everything you can think of that's good um, wasn't good immediately or was good but wasn't great immediately. Absolutely. I went back and watched, have you done this? Like go back and watch the first episode of a sitcom you like. It's shocking. I had a look at It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> it's a show I love. And I went to watch the first episode. They're, they're all the same person. <laughs> There's no delineation between the characters. I had a look at the first episode of The IT Crowd, which is another sitcom that's slightly fallen out of favour in recent years, but I still find it really funny. I looked at the first episode and it's very tentative. Yes. They haven't quite found the characters yet. It's funny you say that because people come to me and go, we're in the fifth series yes. of A Life of Greatness, yes. but I start on the first and I think, oh, God, did you? I don't, don't, don't go to the first. Skip the first. Go biggest, to the second. Uh, but, you know, people say it's good, but I feel like I listen back to your point and go, oh. Oh, that's so true. I have that with Sizzletown, the first episode. I often tell people, just start with this episode three. <laughs> yeah. and then come back and, yeah. and listen to the first ones later. <laughs> but that's true of almost everything. I yes. Think. There's occasionally something incredible happens first time out, like The Office, the original. Yeah, oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Office. That's like you go, wow, they absolutely got it right from episode one, but that is so rare. Yes. But then, again, that's because he'd been doing that David Brent character for years as a sort of party trick. Very true. So you spoke about before you touched on Get This, which is, again, a phenomenal show that was on Triple M and how I how I found out about that show was when I was younger and I lived at home and my brother was obsessed with this Get This and I just remember uh, Tony Martin, Ed Cavalier, Richard Marsland but he would listen to it as a podcast Yeah, and I thought to myself, firstly, I had no idea ironically what a podcast was. Well, neither did we. <laughs> and secondly... I was like, what are you, he'd go, Sarah, come in, just listen to this. And so he would force me, but it right. was obviously very funny. He would force me to sit there and listen to get this because he just was obsessed with it. And it had this absolute cult following, the show that you were on, to the extent that when it got axed, there were people outside the building yes. who were That's protesting a rally because they didn't want it to go off air. It was I mean, one in London. They had a protest rally in London. I mean... Like, how are they even hearing it? So tell us, how was that time? How was that show? Well, it was amazing to... That was very listener-driven and to and remains so. There's a, It's got a huge follow. It's almost more popular now than when it was on. Wow. Partly because of the podcast. And you hit the nail on the head when you say you didn't know what a podcast was because we didn't either. <laughs> There was 2006 when that started. I Matt Dow had to sit me down and explain what a podcast was. And because we'd never really heard any, we went, oh, okay, it has to be really slickly edited. So, you know, most radio shows, yes, they just the, the time yeah. calls off and they join it all up yeah. and cut the songs out. But we actually would spend two hours every day editing the podcast of the show and we didn't do a an episode of every show, we would often take, if we did three segments on the same topic in one week, 
we would take all three of them and then cut them together into one really good segment on that topic. Wow. And it was way too much work. And when we started, I think we were only doing one or two shows a week. And by the end, we were doing four podcasts a week. And it was so much work. And I remember we were furious <laughs> doing it. We were going, why are we spending so much time on this? And it was because we'd started doing it. Yes. The show had this international following as a podcast. So we had to keep doing it to such an insane degree. I mean, that showed me the one episode of the 40-minute Get This podcast had over 500 edits in it on the computer. Wow. And so we – but that only happened because we didn't – know what a podcast was. Yes. We just assumed this is what everyone did. And now, what, 13 years later, 14 years later, I go, thank God we did all that editing because it's really slick. So people who find the podcast now are hearing the very best bits of the show. They think they're just hearing the normal show. Yeah. But if they were to hear the unedited show, which has its own following and its own charm because there's a lot more shambles that goes, you know, that you can enjoy. Um but yeah, it's it's. I'm so glad we did put all that work into the editing of it. And I think that's the key to its long longevity. Where did the cult following come from? It was because we were. It was so different from everything else on the network. Yeah, and that was indeed why why it got axed. We were told you're bringing in. I think we had the highest ratings on the network. Yes, but they said you're bringing in an audience, but it's not the audience we want. It's people who don't listen to, and indeed, in many cases, yeah. don't like Triple M. They're coming to this weird show that's talking about, <laughs> I don't know what we were talking about, Stephen Seagal and, <laughs> and, and a Police 107 cop show from New Zealand. We were just obsessed with, it's what we were talking about earlier about being true to yourself, but we were three nerds, but nerds of very different uh, flavours, and we just ended up talking about things that really obsessed us, and it was so different from everything else that people really got into it. And I think the audience, the, the, the management were very, I think, you know, they would do research where they would say, um, you know, 180 people out of 200 watch uh, Australian Idol. Only about three people watch Stephen Seagal films out of the 200. <laughs> and you go, yeah, but that doesn't mean that those 180 people just want to hear about Australian Idol. Yeah. I love hearing about something I haven't heard about and how bizarre it is, how Stephen Seagal is so large, his thighs are so large that they have to position him <laughs> behind car doors at every shot of the film. Um, you know, how it's not him when, it, when it's someone yeah. running down some stairs. That's f- hilarious to hear about even if you haven't seen the film. Um, so if you can extrapolate that out to an entire show, that's what Get This was. It was, it was just saying, here's, it wasn't saying... Here's something crazy that we're into and excluding the audience. It was saying, here's something crazy you've got to hear about. Yes. And it was drawing people in. When, I mean, obviously that show got axed, you've been on so many shows that have done really well and then, you know, the time comes to end them or they get axed. Firstly, what is the feeling when you're like, okay, it's gotten axed? It was was very, it was a very violent and shocking time and and particularly for me because at at that time I was also in the process of getting divorced. I was in the process of getting divorced from my comedy partner, Mick Malloy. Yes. We had a a kind of quite a public falling out. So all of these shocking, violent things were happening all at once and then of course Richard Marsland, one of the people from the show, died. All of these things happened over just a few months. So it was a really... um, quite a depressing period. And the answer was, <laughs> and I don't know if this is the answer for everyone else, but it was the answer for me was to write a very personal book, which I, I wrote a book called yes. Nest of Occasionals, which uh, didn't do as well as my previous <laughs> book. And I had a lot of people go, I think this book might have been, were you a bit depressed when you wrote this book? <laughs> that was what I used to sort of dig yes. my way out of, out of a hole yeah. was to write that book. I'm not suggesting that's what everyone should do, but um, it worked for me. On the 6th of December in 2008, as you mentioned, Richard Marsland died, which mm. put ripples through this radio station. He was obviously such a dear, dear friend of yours. He committed suicide and he was 32. Mm. And people didn't realise, no. like it came as such a shock yeah. to so many people. I mean, how... How do you navigate that time? Well, it was, it's a hard thing to talk about, but the way I think of it is that what was shocking beyond 
the event itself was the realisation that I didn't really know yeah. Richard at all. And normally when that happens, you go, oh, we, we saw it coming. Mm. Oh, that made sense. This just didn't make any sense. And Richard was obviously someone who I think the word is compartmentalised his life, so he mm. never showed me any of that yeah. side. And, of course, I, all of us were just going, oh, if only he'd talked to us, if only he'd said something. But he mm. his, obviously his way of wor- working through his own issues was to not tell anyone. And, of course, his family knew a lot more about it yeah. than we did and it turned, and I, I mean, I'm not sure if I should even be talking about this, but there had been trouble before. Yes. It's been in the it's paper. It's been in the paper, yeah. Uh, so I'm not talking out no. of school there. But, and, but I guess those, certainly myself and Ed Cavalier and Nikki and Matt and everyone who worked on Get This, we weren't uh, uh, shown that side of Richard. So it was just out of no, it just made no sense whatsoever. Like I couldn't, I <laughs> I found out because it's that terrible thing where you come home and in the days of answering machines, there's like 30 messages. Oh, and you go, oh this is not going to yeah. be good. And the first one was Alan Bro from Specs and Specs telling me what had happened. And I just remember standing there playing it over and over, like this doesn't make any sense. Why? No, that can't be, it must be someone else that he's talking about. Whereas obviously when this happens with a lot of people, it's there's an, a sense of inevitability. Yes. That. So, um, How do you navigate that grief? Oh, well, you, you, you don't really. I mm. mean, you, yeah, I mean, I still, <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter, I mean, I don't think I go more than a few weeks without hashtag I'm Richard. You know, mm. there's, a, it's a, there's a real, Richard Marsland, partly because of get this being something that people are still discovering. It's kind of a weird water slide to dive into when you listen to that show because Richard isn't in it for the first six weeks and then there's Richard and then you're getting to know Richard. Yeah. If you, uh, you know, if you don't know the end of the story, it's like quite shocking to discover. But it's sort of amazing that so much of his work is still available, that you can still enjoy the genius of Richard. There was a kind of genius to Richard Marsden. Um, so... There's a real community of people who loved Richard and still love his work and still love hearing his voice. So, yeah, I mean, if you're a Richard Marsden fan, there's still so much joy to be had. In you. But how do you navigate that? Well, you you just don't really. Mm. It's it's completely uh, it's a completely baffling event to this. Certainly to me, perhaps yes. not to to people who were a bit closer to him. And. The media has obviously been a big part of your life as it is for anyone that's in the spotlight for many, many years now. How has your relationship with the media been, even especially after you mentioned the Malloy breakup? Well, that was the only, that, <laughs> that's, that's the only real controversy I think I've had in, you know, I'm coming up to, it'll be 40 years of this <laughs> And I mean, the only controversy I've had was the me and Mick thing. And that has now become, and, and pretty quickly after it happened, it became a fodder for jokes. I constantly, you know, I recently did. <laughs> I paralleled it with my own characters, Tim and Phil. I had the, I had what happened to me and Mick happened to them. So it's now become fodder for comedy. But that's really the only controversy. And I've never been famous enough to um, be in the Daily Mail. Like, no one's interested in... <laughs> Damn. Like, okay. yeah, I, can, yeah, you know, yeah. I can go to the shops. Yeah, well. yeah. I've driven around uh, occasionally with Glenn Robbins, who's <laughs> a, a, a great comedian. And, you know, I remember we stopped once and he had to go into the 7-Eleven and he was just swarmed by people who wanted him to do the Cal Yes. <laughs> I've never had anything. There was a brief moment perhaps when barge-ass was popular yeah, yeah. when people would yell oh, barge-ass yeah. at me, but it's been very fleeting. I don't, you know, I'm not recognised very often and if I am, they usually think I'm Andrew Denton. So I remember when I found out, because I loved the late show, so it was like it broke my heart to think my two favourite people had had separated. So I think you probably bro- not only did it break your, I'm sure both of your yeah. hearts, but it broke a lot of Australia's hearts as well. well. It is very, it's funny though, because you do, um, you enter into a, a sort of a society of comedy duos who have had falling out. There's, you know, Which there are a lot of. From American Rosso yeah. to Todd and Brandt, the <laughs> yeah. minus. There's been yeah. so many of them who <laughs> sort of had falling outs over the years. And it's now... Um, yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, I sort of, 
the, the people would ask me about it in interviews and I say, well, we're seeing other comedians now. Yes. You know, I entered into a partnership with Ed Cavalli um, and he's now on with Sam Pang. <laughs> you know, it's very incestuous. I also work with Sam. I also <laughs> with with Sam. It's a very um, it's a very small family tree. But and I'm sure Sam Pang wants to eventually. I don't know if you've ever seen the footage of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis being reunited. No, on I haven't. On by Frank Sinatra, and one of them, I, I'm assuming, is Dean, is completely drunk, <laughs> and Sam's always saying he wants to eventually recreate that footage with myself and Mick. But I'm not sure. We, maybe both of us will have to be drunk for it. <laughs> yeah. How has comedy changed your life? Well, it's given me a job that I enjoy doing. So that's the main thing. I mean, and it's certainly, you know, it's introduced me to a, a huge number of amazing people. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I when I left school, I was a forklift driver for a year. Were you? And not a very good one. But, and, and you know, I, I just, you know... I, I don't think, um, yeah, I don't know what would have happened if I if I hadn't found an outlet for my stupid voices, basically. When you look back at all the amazing comedy you've done, is there a certain sketch or time in your life that is the most memorable that you feel the most love towards? Uh, I th- the one that I'm that I enjoy doing the most is the one I'm doing at the moment, Sizzletown with Matt Dower. Um, but uh, there's only the two of us making it. So yeah. it's, it's a very uh, monastic kind of enterprise. The one that was the most fun to do, I think, was Get This, um, mainly because I sort of, I, I, le- I wasn't as fastidious about getting everything perfect on that show. Yes. Martin Malloy was like a couple of scientists doing a comedy where every detail we slaved over and we were very serious. We, I don't think we cracked a smile in four years doing that show. <laughs> and, and Which is ironic because it's a comedy, <laughs> comedy show. It was funny. The only time we really – and the same goes with The Late Show. The only time we really enjoyed ourselves is when we were doing the show. Yes. But for the two hours you're doing the show, there's another 80 hours yes. where you're putting it together. And with Get This, I just decided to – you know, loosen the seatbelt a bit more and allow myself to be the butt of jokes, allow Ed Cavalier to take the piss out of me a bit. And I think I had a bit more fun. Obviously, there was a lot of non-fun behaviour going on behind the scenes with management, so that was quite traumatic. But in terms of a show, that was probably the most enjoyable one, yeah. Day to day in your life, what brings you the most joy? Oh, man, it's... Just look, I I spend a lot of time with my girlfriend. Although I, I do feel strange using the word girlfriend at age fifty seven. Yes, I'm, I refuse to use the phrase partner. Uh, we're not running a bank together, <laughs> um, but we just spend a lot of time together. We've obviously spent a lot more time in the last yeah. uh, couple of years. And, you know, there's the two of us and there's a cat and we watch a lot of television and we have a mad walking project where we're walking every street in Melbourne. <laughs> so, and and beavering away on my various comedy projects. That's that's really it. I, I wish I had a simpler answer to that. Like, I feel that some of your other previous guests have a more <laughs> spiritual kind <laughs> no, of that's answer okay. to that. You, I think you would be an amazing father. Why did you decide never to have kids? That's a, that's one for the therapist, I think. I, I don't know. I had a very uh, complicated upbringing, and I do wonder if um, you know if if that's put me off. Yes. Or but often that has the opposite effect. In, yeah. Generally, in in generations, it flips around. Yes. Um, and now I'm really too old to you know I don't want to be like Clint Eastwood <laughs> <laughs> with, with with children, but um, you know. It, <laughs> And, and I've also had this very strange coincidence happen where I've had three, I've only had three relationships, three yeah. major relationships, and all three of them have been with women who have announced very early on that they have no interest in really? children. It's by total coincidence. So it's never really been an issue. And now because I did that thing childproof, <laughs> I've become to some extent the face of not having yes. children. But, um, you know, I guess... And another answer is there's, not everyone can have them. There's not enough room. No. That's... There's not enough room to store them all <laughs> apart from anything. And what's made you to this point never want to have a mobile phone? Not that that is a bad thing. Well, I, I just find them very annoying. I, I spend... Did you ever have one? Never had one, no. Yeah. Girlfriend has one So because people often go, what happens when you break down in the outback? I'm going, we're not going to the outback. I saw Wolf <laughs> Creek. I'm never going near the outback. 
But um, I just find, I don't know about you, but I spend between two and three hours a day answering emails. Yes. It takes no, I spend a lot of time. Yeah. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, which I do on an old-fashioned desktop computer. Yeah. And I worry that if I had a phone, I would just be on it all the time. It's not some kind of uh, snobbish hatred of phones. It's fear that I would just never be off the phone and I'd never get any work. Yes. And when I'm driving around, I don't want the – I'm listening to albums on CD in the car and I just don't want to be interrupted. And, uh, yeah. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? The best advice I've ever been given? Well, (laughs) Rob Sitch gave me a a, a bit of great advice once and he had been given it by someone else and he said if you can avoid arguments about women and money that eliminates 95% of the trouble you will ever have in your life and I have managed to do both of those things pretty much. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Oh man the lesson that's taken longest to learn is is just not to repeat the same mistakes. I'm constantly in my work I'm going, oh, you did that again. And I'm going, how old do I have to get before I eliminate mistakes, constant errors of judgment from my work? Or running out of breath in the middle of a sentence. (laughs) I need to be a broadcaster. What's going on there? (laughs) I forget when I interview comedians how funny they are. Well. What what is your greatest hope for society today? Well, I guess we could... We would need an hour to address climate change. Yes. I think that's that's obviously the the uh, the carbon spewing elephant in the room. Uh, that something uh, sensible is done in that department. Yeah, would probably be. I think any thinking person would would have that as their answer. Um, so yeah, really, the, the, the <laughs> I think that's the big one. Yes, I can't go beyond that. What is a life of greatness to you? Being able to have spent most of my life doing something that I really enjoy yes. is a life of greatness yeah. in, in a very selfish way. A life of greatness should be uh, doing something to benefit others, I feel. And in a very small, tiny way, I've had a, a little taste of that in that probably seven times a year someone stops me in the street <laughs> and tells me, that they had a test for hemochromatosis based on a story I wrote in one of my books, which is about having an iron-storing disorder, which is what I have. And I only wrote it because I thought, I can get a lot of iron jokes into one story. But it's ended up benefiting a lot of people. And I've had so many people tell me that, not saying that I saved their lives, I don't want to go that far, um, <laughs> I'm not a deity, let's just get that <laughs> on the record, but... Um, but you know, I, I often think, I go, wow, I've done all these sketches and all these jokes and voices, and yet probably the most useful thing I've done is make people have the hemochromatosis test. So I think there's a, a slight microbe of greatness in that achievement. Tony Martin, you have brought so much joy to so many people's lives. You brought so much joy to my... You were the first person that brought so many laughs into my life when I was young. So. Oh, wow. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.